0: Well, good morning. If you have your Bibles, get them open to Mark chapter 6. If you do not have a Bible, there's a black one. thankful that you are here this morning with us. Grateful that you've uh, given up your time to be here and pray that the Lord will bless you. I get a chance uh, to teach what is a pretty unique passage in the book of Mark. Mark is a, a gospel, which means it's all about Jesus' life and ministry and, and death and resurrection. And we have this big section in the middle of Mark 6 that isn't about Jesus at all. Right, it's all about uh, John the Baptist and King Herod, and so that's what we're going to be looking at today. Um, and so I'm, I'm going to try to use that to encourage the church this morning, encourage followers of Jesus. But before I get into that, I just need to state at the start um, that even by the Bible's admission, this is what we're going to talk about today is not the most important thing. Uh, the most important thing, according to First Corinthians 15, of, of as first importance is that Christ died for our sins, that he was buried and he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. And the reason that matters, right, is because you and I have sinned. We've done things that are wrong. This is not a small thing. This, this separates us from the God who made us. And it puts us in a position that we owe him a debt that we cannot pay. And if that is not... Paid, then we will actually go spend an eternity in hell, right? There's suffering and torment because we have been separated from our creator by our sin, which is why uh, God, the Bible says that God loved us. He proved his love for us in this, that while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. That Christ went to the cross to pay our price uh, for our sin. And then he defeated death three days later by rising again to prove that God accepted the sacrifice and to open up eternal life for us. And so if there's anybody here right, who hasn't ever given their life to Jesus Christ, who never surrendered to that, uh, then that's what you've been looking for all your life, right? That, that reconciliation to your creator, that's what you've been missing. And that's the only thing I want you to think about this morning. That's what I want percolating through your brain. Uh, if you don't listen to anything else I say this morning, that's what I want you uh, to, to wrestle with and, and wrestle with the Lord with and, and hopefully are pleased that you'll give your life to him this morning. Uh, but I'm going to use Mark 6 to encourage uh, the church today. I'm going to ask you to join me in a word of prayers as we launch out into this. This, uh, message, let's pray. Father, we're grateful. And we're grateful for Jesus and what He's done for us the new life and forgiveness and eternal life that He's opened for us. And God, we're grateful for your word. And, and even uh, in, with passages like this that are just dark and dreary and difficult, Lord, um, we pray that, uh, that, that your intended meaning behind it, your truth in it, would, would be made evident today. Uh, God, that your voice would be heard the loudest in this room. And we ask that you to get the glory from all of this. In Jesus' name, amen. So I can still remember the first, what I would call, big uh, expense, big purchase of my life that I regretted. Let me take you back in time, it was 1998, I was a junior at Clodo High School, and in the late 90s, what was in style at that time was, were carpenter jeans. Right, They're were, they were kind of looser, baggier-fitting jeans, and they had a loop on them here for a hammer, only they were worn by people who weren't carpenters or who didn't know how to use a hammer, right? Um, but they were just a fashion statement. And at Clodo High School, there was one particular brand that stood out above all the rest. We called them Tommy jeans. All right? They were the Tommy Hilfiger carpenter jeans, because they were just a little bit baggier. They looked a little bit nicer. And on the loop, they had, they had a blue and red logo. And, and they weren't an item of clothing. They were a statement. Right? You're letting the world know that you were cool, right? That you were better than all the people who didn't have Tommy jeans because you had Tommy jeans. And one weekend, I found myself, ironically, in Terre Haute because when you live in Cloverdale, there's nothing to do there, right? So you go to Terre Haute or Plainfield, and I found Tommy jeans at J.C. Penney in Honey Creek Mall, and I looked at the price tag, and it was an absolute gut punch. And I was like, oh, there's no way I would ever spend that much on jeans. And I knew I couldn't ask my parents for help because there's no way they would ever spend that much on jeans. And so I passed. But then all week long at school, right, I watched people walk by with Tommy jeans. And I was like, man, I just want to pair those so bad. Because I want to be seen that way, right? And just so happened that the next Saturday I was back in Terre Haute. And I thought, well, if I'm back in Tarot, I might as well go back to Honey Creek Mall. And if I'm at the Honey Creek Mall, I might as well go back to JCPenney, right? And I might as well walk straight to the Tommy Jeans and see if they're on sale. They weren't. They were not on sale, right? But all week long, I convinced myself that the price would be worth it. I'd saved up money from my summer job at the golf course, and I took them to the counter, and I watched as she rang up $72 plus tax. It was awful, right? I I did the math for you with inflation. That's four and a half million dollars today, okay? Um, Don't look it up, I did the math for you, okay? Um, And I gave up the majority of my money, right? For one pair of jeans, and I didn't regret it. Not the moment, right? Felt great, actually. I couldn't wait for Monday. And Monday morning, I didn't walk into school, I strolled into school, right? Because I felt good. And immediately, I, I, I couldn't believe it. My experience changed. Right? People treated me different. When I, every classroom I walked in, the teacher was like, you know what? For no reason, I'm making your grade an A. I'm just giving it to you, right? There were girls who were just throwing their phone numbers at me begging me to ask them out. And they, Clover High School actually went back and retroactively made me homecoming king the prior three years. I couldn't believe it, right? It was amazing. Best money I've ever spent. Except none of that happened. None of it. You know what happened? Nobody cared. Like literally nobody cared. And what I think was, is that everybody else was just as self-focused as me, so they didn't even notice and didn't care. And I remember thinking about second hour, wow, I wasted my money for this? And it's why to this day, I still won't spend more than $30 on jeans. And I know what you're thinking. You don't have to tell us that. We've noticed, right? Sam's Club, baby, right? Now listen, I'd like to say that I grew out of caring what other people think. I'd like to tell you this this morning, this is something adults get over, but we don't. Adults, organizations, businesses, even churches, feel this great pressure to conform, to fit into social pressures, to be seen as with the times, whatever that means. And in doing so, right, we look to human beings for approval. We look to to society. We look to social media and the sways of culture for guidance and for truth. And far too often we do it, we fail to realize just how damaging this is. Today in Mark, we're going to read a story that's not a happy story. It is a bleak and dark and tragic story. But you know what it is? It's all a result of what happens when we look to sources that are not eternal for truth. It will paint for us a picture of what results when we live for the approval of other human beings. And so if you care way too much about what others think of you, if fear is one of your greatest hindrances to evangelism, if our society has made you afraid of owning your faith, if you're feeling an increased pressure to compromise your faith, or if you're being tempted to do so in order to get the applause of others, I'm really glad you're here today, right? Because today in Mark, we're going to see what guided the life of King Herod and the destruction of those things that were left in its wake. So I'm going to invite Travis Beckner up. He's going to be reading for us Mark 6, verses 14 through 29. And if you're physically capable, would you please stand to honor the reading of the Word of God this morning?
1: Morning, church. Um... I'm gonna start at twelve just to lead into it, just so you know I'm not I'm not confused about where we are. Uh, so they went out and proclaimed that people should repent, and they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and he many who were sick and healed them. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, that is why these miraculous works are at work in him. But others said he is Elijah, and others said he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I'm beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted him put to death. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the the girl gave it to her mother. And when his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in the tomb. Thanks, Trap. You guys have a seat.
0: Keep your Bibles open there to Mark 6. Like I warned you, this is not an uplifting story, right? Uh, but as we look uh, to learn from biblical accounts, right, why does God include this in his word? What did, what did, you know, what did Mark have in mind when he include this? I think sometimes the authors give us a pretty big clue because it's interesting to me how Mark frames the story. Right, it's interesting to me how he, how he shapes it, right? And he starts by pointing out for us that, that human opinion is unreliable. If you, if you read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you see uh, all these accounts of different people taking their guesses as to who Jesus Christ was. And I don't think it's by accident that Mark includes his here in Mark 6, right? Because human opinion varies as much as humans do. Ruth Graham uh, once said, if, if two people agree on everything, then one of them is not necessary, I agree with that. I've just never met two people who agree on everything. Right? And this is actually good in some way. It's great for diversity of thought. right? It's great for problem solving. It's great for uh, having multiple different angles, look at something. It's great for coming to a more representative consensus. But you know what it also is? It, it makes for a terrible source of truth. Human opinion makes for a terrible source of truth. And it's why in verses 14 to 16 we see multiple different guesses of who Jesus is. Because Jesus' fame has grown to the point where kings are hearing of him. And so everybody's got an opinion. Everybody's got a thought. I'll tell you who this guy is, right? And some are saying he's John the Baptist. And others are saying, no, this is Elijah who's come back. And others are saying he's a a great prophet. Now, all these guesses would be flattering for me and for you. Right? A prophet is somebody who hears directly from God and then gives that message to the people. It's, it's a very honorable position. Elijah was one of the greatest prophets in Israel's history. John the Baptist, Jesus said of John the Baptist, he was the greatest born of a woman. So this is not a bad list. There's just one problem with it. All of them are wrong. All of them. In fact, Jesus Christ is the only one in history for whom this list would be insulting. Because all of them fall short of who he really is. And this highlights for us the failings and the weaknesses of the opinions of human beings, right? We cannot look to ourselves. We cannot look to any other human or any collection or society of human beings for truth. Because if that truth originates in humanity, it will be wrong somewhere. It will always fall short of the fullness of truth. And ultimately, it will always end up in a place that's insulting to our creator, And I think Mark gives us this little glimpse because it plays directly into how John the Baptist's fate was sealed. Because this heartbreaking story that Travis read for us, ultimately, you know what it feels like? It just feels so senseless. But it is the result of letting the influence and opinion of others matter way more than they should. Because living for the approval of others is destructive. Now, we aren't told a lot about King Herod in the Gospels. It seems like a lot at first read because you're actually reading about two different King Herods, right? His father was the one uh, that you read about in Jesus' birth, and now he's here later in Jesus' ministry. But from this story alone, we get kind of an inside picture into what made him tick. Despite being incredibly powerful, he was clearly insecure, which made him a lot like his father before him. And we're told in verse sixteen who Herod thinks Jesus is. In verse sixteen says, When Herod heard it, he said, John, that's John the Baptist, the one I beheaded has been raised. You see, Herod thinks this because he's still haunted by John's death. And there's some historical background I want to share with you to help you understand what led to this story, right? When his father died, Herod Antipas was named as Tetrarch of Galilee. He was, he was, he was declared as King of Galilee uh, by Rome, and he would stay King of Galilee so long as Rome thought he was doing a good job. And in that, he after he became king, he married uh, the daughter of Eretus, uh, which was, the, he was the king of the territory right next to him. And so it was kind of a political marriage. It was a, a strategic one. But sometime later, Herod made a really bad decision in his personal life. And he started having an affair with his brother's wife. Right? And, and they both, both Herod and his brother's wife, divorced their spouses and got married. And she took the name Herodias. And this causes a lot of trouble for Herod. Right? It angers the king neighboring to him, right, and this will lead to his downfall later in life. It upset the Jewish people in Galilee that he ruled over because they held a high view of marriage, and one of them was John the Baptist, this outspoken, famed prophet who in some way got an audience with Herod and told him that what he had done was wrong. John was clear about it. What you did in this was wrong, and this didn't bother Herod greatly. My guess is, as a public person, he was used to being criticized, but it did bother somebody. It, bo- it angered Herodias a lot. And this gets John in trouble because the king's wife has it out for him. We see this in verse 17. It says, for Herod himself had given orders to arrest John and to chain him in prison. Why? Because Herod was mad? Because John done something? No. On the account of Herodias, his brother Phil's wife, because he'd married her. And so Herodias is not like John, and she has a a grudge against him. And so Herod tries to appease his wife by putting John in prison, but it didn't work. It didn't satisfy her wrath. Look at verse 19. It says Herodias held a grudge against him and wanted to kill him. That seems like a reasonable response, doesn't it? You don't like a life decision I made, so I want you dead. See, Herodias doesn't want John dead in jail. She wants him dead. But there's something that's keeping John alive. Did you catch it? Verse 19 continues. It says, But she could not because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing he was a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard him, he would be very perplexed that he liked to listen to him. Now, how interesting is that? The king likes listening to John. He kept wanting to hear him more and more and more. But instead of ever submitting to John's teaching... Instead of ever repenting of his sins, instead of ever responding to the truth John was sharing, the Bible says that Herod's posture was perplexed. Now, the Greek word there is apareho, which means to not know what to do. It's to be at a loss of oneself, which literally means this. Herod didn't know what to do with John. Right? Because on the one hand, he liked him. He liked his teaching. He, he knew he was a righteous man. And there was something that gripped Herod when he talked. Obviously, that was we believe that was the Holy Spirit convicting him, right? But on the other hand, for King Herod to actually surrender to what John was teaching him, he'd have to make some major changes in his life. He had to admit he was wrong. He had to admit his marriage and how he went about it was wrong. He'd have to repent. He'd have to look humble in front of people he led. He'd have to recognize that there was a Lord in his life higher than him and even higher than Rome. And so he was left perplexed. He didn't know what to do with all this. And then we read this really ominous phrase in verse 21, that an opportune time came for Herodias. You see, she's been waiting her desire for blood has not waned, and in this opportune time, what happened is Herod decides to throw a birthday party for himself. It's a cute thing for a grown man to do, isn't it? And we see some reasons that Herod didn't accept John's teaching fully, right? We see just, in, just the way this party plays out, right, that it would be massively different if Herod had surrendered his life to God. But instead, it looks like what you might guess it would look like. He invites all the most important men he can, and he has them come and celebrate him. It's an ego play. And they feast, and they get drunk, and they engage in revelry, and they start acting inappropriately. And to top it all off, Herodias' own daughter comes in and dances for Herod and all his male guests. Now, this was not a children's recital, this was provocative. And verse 22 tells us that this pleased Herod and his guests. They enjoyed the show and being intoxicated and going with the momentum of the evening, Herod then makes a statement that is beyond stupid. Verse 22, the king said to the girl, ask me whatever you want and I'll give it to you. He promised her with an oath. He gives an oath. Whatever you ask for, I will give you up to half my kingdom. I mean, how dumb can you get? You want to throw away half your kingdom for a dance? May it just let's just say this. May it never be said that lots of alcohol and indulgence make you wiser. This girl, likely disgusted by the feel of the room at this point, leaves and goes and asks her mom for advice. Mommy offered me everything, up to half the kingdom, whatever I want. Like, what should I ask for? And this is when Herodias gives a dumber answer than the offer. She asked for John the Baptist's head on a platter immediately. I mean, think for a second on that. From that request alone, you can see the darkness, can't you? The violence in the request. It wasn't enough to have him killed. She wanted his head displayed as a trophy. The hatred in the request, the bitterness in the request, the foolishness of the request. Her own daughter has a chance to gain up to half the kingdom and she'll get nothing out of this. But Herodias, she's gonna get the one thing that she's been longing for. Now, surely Herod, who likes John and protects John and understands that John's a holy righteous man, surely he won't grant such a ridiculous request, right? He doesn't want to. The Bible says he's deeply distressed when he hears this. But he does it. He gives the order. And you know what's worse than that? You know why he does it? Look at verse 26. Although the king was deeply distressed... Because of his oaths and the guests, he did not want to refuse her. That's it. The two reasons Herod have are the oaths, the promise he made, and his guests, how he's going to look in front of them. Can't look dumb in front of them as a king, a little late for that, I would suggest. Can't seem powerless, can't seem weak, can't seem inconsistent, can't look soft, Kind of hard to protect the holy man and the audience of drunk idiots you just brought in the strip before, isn't it? And so for purely self-centered, selfish, egotistical, vain, self-serving reasons for Herod, John the Baptist loses his life. Herod gives the order. John is killed. Herod does it. Don't miss that. He does it. Yes, Herodias is pure evil here. But Herod, as the king, had the final call. And for those pathetic reasons, he gave the order. Whenever humans live for the approval of others, destruction always follows, always. We cannot, we must not serve the God of approval of other humans in the society we live in. It will always lead to our ruin and the ruin of others. Now, there is a source of truth that never fails. There is something that we should base our life on, though. There is someone whose approval and opinion should carry more weight, and Herod was perplexed by it but he never surrendered to it. You see, John the Baptist was a prophet. He was the last prophet before Jesus. He was the one sent to prepare the way for the Messiah. And this is what the Bible tells us about prophets. Second Peter says, above all you know this, no prophecy of scripture comes from the prophet's own interpretation because no prophecy ever came by the will of man. Instead, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. He says, no, prophets did not give their own message. They didn't give their own interpretation. The, the, Spirit, the, the Spirit of God gave them the words to say. And so when John would teach, he would share the truth and message that the holy, awesome creator the Lord had given him. And we have this morning in our hands the Bible, the scriptures, the holy scriptures, which are the written words of the prophets and the apostles and humans who were sharing the truth of God. But the scriptures are not just a collection of writings from human beings. Because we have the same promise about the scripture, 2 Timothy 3, that all scripture is what? Inspired by God. You know what that means? It means breathed out by God. That when the human authors were writing the scriptures, the Lord himself was giving him the words to say, and therefore, the word of the Lord is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, and for training in righteousness. Just as John was giving Herod truth that came from God himself, we have in the scriptures holy truth that comes from the Lord himself. And whenever we are confronted by it, whenever we're exposed to it, whenever we hear it or read it, we have the same choice that Herod had. Will we ignore it? Will we be be perplexed by it? Or will we surrender to it? I'm gonna tell you, the only reason that we would not surrender to it, is because another source of truth sounds better to us. But in doing so, we would be missing a major difference, that any truth that does not have its origins in God is a truth that has its origins in human beings, and therefore it will fail. It's not eternal. It's not truth in full. First Peter tells us that all flesh, that's us, human beings, we're flesh, all flesh is like grass, and all glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls. That's what we do. We rise and we fall. We're born and we die and, we, and the world goes on. But what happens? The word of the Lord endures forever. Societies have come and gone. Human beings have come and gone. Cultures, truths, pass and change and transform rapidly. But the word of the Lord endures forever because he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. His design for our flourishing is unchanging. His design for our good is untied to the whims of the world, and it has been proven over centuries. And I don't like ever sounding like the sky is falling guy. I don't think it's helpful in preaching, and I think it ignores the fact that God is still on his throne. But you can call a spade a spade. We have made a seismic shift in our culture. The world that my children are growing up in does not look like the world that I even grew up in. And it shows no signs of slowing down. We're not getting closer to God's design. We are aggressively rejecting it and pushing back against it. We aren't anymore tolerating or abiding by things that stand in contrast to God. We are celebrating them. And never before has there been more constant pressure to discard the Holy Scriptures and give in to the ways of the world. Because the messaging is relentless. The tools used for the messaging are unceasing and the efforts are heightening. But make no mistake about it if we live for the approval of others, it will lead to our destruction. It's this is wisdom that goes back centuries. Solomon, all the way back in Proverbs, said the fear of mankind right? worrying about what others think of you, fearing men is a snare, it's a trap. But the one who trusts in the Lord is protected. So what are you to do, mom and dad, grandparent? What are you to do, teacher and business leader and coach? What are you to do, young person who's thrown literally on the front lines of the social wars every day? Are we to freak out? Are we to fight back with the same intensity? Are we to use all the tools they're using? Are we to pick it and yell and scream? Well, might I suggest something much more simpler and much more powerful. Let's start with hearing God's voice first. In psychology, there's a law that's known as the law of exposure. It aligns with what the scriptures teach. It's a really simple concept. It's been proven over and over and over again, and yet we still like to push back against it. But the law of exposure simply says this, that the human brain, the human mind, will think about and process whatever it is most often exposed to, and eventually the human mind will attract whatever it is most often exposed to. So the idea is this the more that you're exposed to something the more you think about it the more you dwell on it the more you process it and then the more you're attracted to it right? and this law works regardless of whether something's true or not which is why you see even christians followers of jesus somehow uh, they, they've devoted their lives kind of their own personal life mission that matters way too much to them, matters way more to them than the mission god has given them for their lives and You trying to make sense of it the, the sense is because of this law It's because they've exposed themselves to that more and more, be it in experience or community or social media, the internet, time, whatever. People deconstruct their faith because of this law, not because what they find is true, but because of this law. People feel distant from God because of this law. We feel distant from God because we listen to every voice but His. And the origins of things, right? How something starts matters. And this includes your everyday. And I'm going to argue that, that, that many of us as followers of Jesus trying to, trying to be faithful to him in this world that is not faithful to him, we, many, too many of us have one of two mornings. Uh, either one, we, we sleep into the last possible minute and then we're jolted into a life uh, of instant hurry and stress and we start our days immediately tackling tasks and we just go onto the, the rabbit wheel immediately with no thoughts of the Lord. And we're just off and we start every day like that. Our number two, we reach over and we turn the, phone, the alarm off on our phone and we open up the phone and just start scrolling. We aren't even out of bed yet. We aren't even fully awake yet. And we're exposing ourselves to the onslaught of messages from news and, and internet and advertisements and social media and more, none of which will take our thoughts to the Lord. And I want to plead with you today to start your day differently than that. To build some margin in from the time that you get up until the time that you're needed. Yes, I'm talking about what was known and celebrated in church culture when I was growing up as quiet time. But I'm not talking about it as a legalistic duty. I'm talking about this joyfully. To do this for your own soul, for your own sake, for your own heart, for your own formation to ensure that you hear the voice of God first. You get up, splash some water in your face, pour a cup of coffee if you're a coffee drinker, whatever it needs to get yourself alert. And then start with two to three minutes of just silence and solitude before the Lord. Quieting your heart, quieting your room, quieting your mind, quieting in your soul, just preparing to hear from him. And then read a psalm. Read a passage from the New Testament, the Old Testament, right? Read something in this word, whatever your reading plan is, and actually think about what you're reading. Meditate on it, underline some things, take some notes, think about what it's saying. And then talk to the Lord about what stood out. Have a dialogue with him about his word. Ask him to help you apply it and live it out in your day. And then have a brief uh, time of a free prayer for yourself and others. Devote that day to the Lord and sit in silence with him for a couple more minutes. Giving him the chance to influence you. And then head out on your day. You'll have the same demands. you have the same to-do list you would have had. The same pressures, only it's going to feel entirely different. And then and only then, pick up your phone. And if you can extend that to eight, extend it to eight. If you can extend it to nine, ten, noon, do that. The longer you can go with only hearing God's voice, the better. And the second step is just as important as well. You hear God's voice first, and then you hear God's voice loudest. Jesus, in praying for his disciples, prayed that they would not be of the world, but that he would leave them in the world. Which means this, the onslaught is coming. The avalanche of human feelings and desires and opinions is is coming. And yes, I'm including mine and yours. And what we do when we hear those things and we feel those things and see those things and get inundated with those things is we funnel them all back through what we know to be true. We funnel them all back through what the Lord spoke to us in the quiet place. We funnel them all back through what he's revealed to us in his eternal word. We compare those messages and those feelings and those desires to the truth that is unchanging. In Acts 17, Paul and Silas travel to a town called Berea, and they begin teaching the people there about the Messiah and how Jesus fulfilled everything that was prophesied about the Messiah in the Old Testament scriptures. And listen to what we're told about them. Luke writes, the, the people here were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica since they received the word with eagerness. I like that. They're open to what Paul and Silas are saying, but then they did another step, which is really important. What? And examine the scriptures daily to see if these things were true. It's like, Paul and Silas, I like what you're saying. I just got to go back and make sure that it lines up with what the Lord has revealed. And that is what we do. We take what we hear, we examine it to the scriptures, and we decipher whether it is worth holding on to or whether it's worth letting go of. And by the way, you need to know that sin has done such a work on our hearts and minds and souls that even that at times won't be enough for us. Even that won't be enough to convince us. There are times where God has clearly laid something out in his word, and it's like, I just don't feel, that doesn't feel good to me. No matter how clear it's laid out. When those times, there's one more funnel that we can use. We take our feelings and our desires and we funnel them through the character of God. The God who took on our form who became one of us, who died and suffered in our place to offer us life forever. The God who formed us and placed us and created us and designs us and loves us and guides us. The God who wants us to find our joy in him. The God who's so clearly for us, who's proven his love for us, is a God that we can trust even when we don't feel like it. He's a God whose truth that I can submit to even when my desires don't line up with it. And we like to claim things like my truth, don't we? And we clean it up with language that sounds loving and inclusive and compassionate, but it's all window dressing. It's all lipstick on a pig. Because it doesn't Change. It does nothing to change the fact that every single time human beings step away from God's truth and God's design and follow human opinion and seek human approval, the results have been devastating. Every single time. I want to ask you whose life is better in Mark 6? Whose life got better? Herodias' rage would not be satisfied with revenge. It never is. Herod later on is still haunted by John's death. His soul is now blocked off from hearing of the salvation that he could have known. History records for us, right? I looked this up this week, that he will later lose his entire kingship and his entire rule because of Herodias' influence in the fallout from their marriage. He's going to lose everything. And John the Baptist is murdered for nothing. Whose life is better? See, the fear of man, the seeking of the approval of others, these are mighty and powerful forces. They speak directly to our ego. They speak directly to our desire to be liked and applauded. And to resist them, we're going to have to fight our own sinful nature. To resist them, we have to fight our kids' sinful natures. We have to stand against the relentlessness of the internet. To have, we have to have a deep conviction about God's goodness and design. But our hope this morning is not in our strengths. Our hope is not in some form of Christian nationalism. That dream is gone. Our hope is not in our righteousness or or having a strong will. Our hope is in meeting Jesus Christ in the quiet place. It's in listening to his word. It's in abiding in him, remaining in him, and making space and margin for him to speak to us and shape us and form us. It's in listening to his voice first and making his voice loudest in our lives. You know what Jesus, our great shepherd, said about his followers in John 10? He said, my sheep, what? They hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. Do you? Do you hear his voice? Do you seek it out? Have you you made the time to listen? Is his voice the first that you run to every day? Is it truly the loudest in your life? If not, make it be that way because Jesus is our hope. He's our hope against the onslaught. Let's pray. Father, I'm always encouraged by your word of examples and things that point us the right way to do things. But I'm always thankful for the ones that show the fallacies of the wrong ways of doing things. And Lord, too many times, I've made bad decisions. Too many times I've made some really wrong uh, decisions because of my oaths and because of the audience. And Lord, I know your grace forgives me. I know that if we're going to repent of those things, I can find your grace new, but I want to hear your voice first. I want to hear your voice the loudest. And so I pray specifically for people who have been feeling this pull or temptation to compromise their faith, to, to surrender, to give in on something that, that you have so clearly revealed to be true in your word. And we want to we listen to other voices and we want to listen to our desires. We want to ignore that and put little asterisks in the Bible for us. Lord, instead of, instead of trying to find human wisdom that will lead to our destruction, may we run to your feet and abide in you. May we be the sheep here at FBN who hear the voice of our Shepherd, who know Him, because He knows us, and may we follow Him. We ask that You would do this for our sake. We ask that You do this for Your sake. We ask that You do this for the glory of Your name and Your kingdom. And we pray this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. So we're gonna.